Well, there's a couple of things today um, that, that we're focusing on. One is uh, the finding of this robe. Uh, in the fifth century, um, people were hearing stories about in northern Galilee, in Palestine, that somebody had something that was a relic of the Virgin Mary. And uh, so they traced it down and found that in this house, uh, this person was con having a robe that actually belonged to the Virgin Mary that had been passed down for, from generation to generation to generation. And one of the things, uh, or the reasons of it, was the uh, fact that healings would happen when people would come and, and touch uh, her, her tunic and so on and so forth, and, and a part of her belt. So um, the church celebrates the idea that the, the uh, robe was then taken to Constantinople and placed in a church uh, at Blaknarne, which is like a suburb of Constantinople. But the point being that relics remind us of how present and imminent the, the saints are and the holy is around us. Um, there is something very powerful about all that. And, and we've talked about this before, how even the bones of holy people, the Holy Spirit communicates healing presence uh, through those situations. Like with the story of uh, the prophet Elisha, like we mentioned many times, to show that this, there's precedent for this in Scripture. When uh, a corpse fell on his uh, bones because they dug up his grave by mistake uh, to bury somebody, and so while they were trying, they were going to go dig another grave by mistake, the corpse of their friend got knocked into the grave, and as it fell on the skeleton of Elisha, the prophet, the guy came back to life. So there's all these mysteries we know, you know, icons that, that ooze myrrh and, and so on and so forth, that God uses the things of this world to communicate that he's here and that he's present in the kingdom, and that he laces his presence, kind of like the way the nervous system goes through the body, it's through everything or our circulatory system. It's not just in one spot here and there, it's, it circulates and touches everything all around us. We just don't see it. And this is what Jesus has really kick-started even in a deeper way through his death, resurrection, and ascension. So that's one of the things we celebrate uh, this day. And the other part of this, though, is also in the living people, uh, as well as their relics later. But I, I wanted to share a couple of thoughts with... Um, the gospel today and, and even the epistle, and in light of the story of, of John of, of San Francisco. Um, we read the story today about um, the centurion coming to Jesus and wanting his servant healed, who's paralyzed. And Jesus says, well, come into your house, which is, we have to understand the, the cultural context would have been mind-blowing for a Jewish person to hear that Jesus was invited or by a a uh, Gentile to heal someone and then Jesus responds by saying well I'll come to your house and we have to understand that intermingling with Gentiles people who are not of the faith of Israel was you would seriously soil yourself spiritually and you would have had to go through a, at least a week-long cleansing uh, rituals and so forth and maybe because the centurion understood that he says you don't need to do that but more importantly, he understands that, Lord, if you say, just say it. Just say it and it'll happen. 
Because this is the God from, like in Genesis, who goes, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. And it was. And is. And this is the God that's with us, and the God who's present among us. But also in the fact that he's present through us, I mean the fact that Jesus, again, takes on our human realities into himself, takes on our human DNA, and we are actual direct extensions of the presence of Jesus. And what the, the pr- life of prayer, the services of the church are designed to do is it because we have to understand this, it's not just going to church and getting communion, that the cycle of services is like a training, it's like a formation that takes place. Transformation and formation. And, and the idea of being able to participate, you know, and I'm not, I know there's extenuating circumstances at times and so on and so forth, but trying to participate in that cycle is a really important kind of thing because it has an effect on us spiritually. These are not just services just to fill in the gap or t- take the time and make us feel happy and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it is actually designed to do formation. And it's kind of like any exercise you do where you don't feel the effects of it right away. But over time, there is an effect. There is a result. And so being in church isn't just, well, you know, it's a good thing for me to do and that's nice. Or being in church, you know, isn't just to be here so people won't see the place as looking as empty uh, and so on and so forth. But being here is importantly because there's a formation. There's something that happens to us being here that doesn't happen elsewhere. I can think about exercises, but until I go to the place where I can exercise, nothing's going to happen. I can read all the books on exercise. I can look at, you know, DVDs or videos of exercise on YouTube and so on and so forth. But I have to be there. Because Christ is already here. Yes, he's all over the place, but there's something about here that is like when you want to put gasoline in your car, you don't just get a bucket of gas, open the the gas tank, uh, the pipeline, just throw the bucket of of gas and hope some gas gets in. You have to funnel it. There has to be something that directs it specifically into the car. And the saints in our lives are are the people that show that reality of what happens when we allow that to happen. And today in the church calendar, we remember uh, John of, of Shanghai and San Francisco because they, in both places he was a bishop. And real fast, I, I mentioned some things about him in the, the bulletin, uh, the back where his icon's there. Um, if you would have met St. John in real life, and I had people in my parish that knew him, um, he was barely five foot tall, he had coke-thick glasses, he had a little bit of a lisp. Very educated. He was actually uh, was trained to be a lawyer, and then, but he felt the Lord calling him uh, to the church and serving in the church, which he did, became a monk, got ordained, and became a bishop. And then in the wake of the, the 1917 revolution in, in Russia, he left, and uh, there was a bunch of bishops who, because they would not sign a, uh, like an oath of allegiance to the Kremlin, uh, you know, they, f- they formed their own thing. And he went and became Bishop of Shanghai in China. And while he was there, he saw what was going on with the children. Because if you were poor or, or you were abandoned, children were, you could do with them whatever you wanted. And the slavery issue was really a big thing. 
And John formed an orphanage to collect these kids, but also to redeem them out of slavery, using the money from the diocese to do that. And so people began to learn that this bishop, this little guy who was taking care of everything, you know, was, a, was a, and in fact a very loving, a loving kind of person. He actually was known for praying and, and healings and miracles would happen. He was clairvoyant. I mean, there's tons of stories about that reality um, with him. He was a little eccentric. He would, uh, <laughs> I guess one time it was he, when he was in California later, um, he found out where somebody had been killed in an auto accident, and he literally went to the highway and set up a table and did a memorial service right there with incense and the whole night. And people in traffic are looking at this and going, wow, you know. Very humble. Uh, the kids had made a paper mache hat for him, bishop's crown, and he'd wear that, and he preferred that to the other things. Um, when the communist regime came in after World War II, it got to be too intense. I mean, they had to survive the Japanese occupation and that, those horrors. But then with the communist regime that was going to just stamp out the church, um, he literally took his entire, all the members of his diocese and had them moved. He, he worked out an arrangement with the American embassy and other things, had them all moved to the Philippines to be safe. He would go to Paris and be there for a while and uh, there was nothing th there in the beginning. He, was, he would do liturgy, and imagine he's a bishop now. He's doing liturgy in a garage in Paris. And yet he became known because when he would pray for people, things would happen. And he would know things. I mean, uh, one person who uh, wrote him a letter about, please pray for my dad, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, like about eight years before this. And in the interim of, of things, and this is another part of the world, this person's father had passed away. He went to find St. John in uh, Paris, and um, he said, uh, oh, yeah, I know about your, your dad. I've been praying for him. And he pulled out this card that showed the record. He would mark when he would pray and do services for people. And no way he could have humanly known this. He had marked doing a memorial service for his dad exactly the day his father died, and there was no way. He would, I mean, he was amazing. I, one of my parishioners talked about the fact that um, how he worked out their marriage and knew what was going to happen and everything else. Uh, just amazing stuff. Uh, he'd come out, <laughs> one, one young man, well, he was young at the time, he's waiting for bus, had no money to go back. He's waiting for the bus in front of the cathedral, and suddenly this little guy comes out <laughs> with a robe, <laughs> hands him the exact amount of cash he needs to take a, buy a bus ticket to go back to his uh, parents' home and just walks back into the church. And yet this guy suffered. I think we, we tend to think that guys who have these experiences um, where he would pray for people and situations would change for people, but he endured persecution and hardship. When he got to San Francisco, uh, the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox there were just in horrible turmoil. They were, there was infighting, backbiting, back, you know, and so on and so forth. And they were trying to build a, a new cathedral, but kept falling through because everybody in the community was, was fighting. So his presence had an effect where it was changing people's lives, but some people were upset, and I will admit this, some bishops got jealous of him because of the way the people loved him. 
And so they accused him and took him to court trying to pin an embezzlement thing on him. And the case was so obviously doctored up that the judge not only threw it out of court, he totally skewered verbally the bishops that came uh, to get him arrested and, and get him legally in trouble. But his heart was so broken that other bishops would do this that he died a short time later just because he couldn't, he, he had a real, even though he was educated as all get out, he had a very simple kind of heart. And he just couldn't believe other bishops would do such a thing. When he died, they buried him in a crypt down in the basement of the, the cathedral. And then things started happening like oil coming out of his tomb and this whole wild stuff. In 1993, I think it was, he was canonized, finally, with some of the same bishops that took him to court, agreeing to the canonization, and so on and so forth. My experience with him, <laughs> God has a sense of humor. I was, I was working at the time uh, in the uh, early 1990s, uh, I was business development manager at an at uh, office furniture and design company called Steelcase. And there was a bookstore right next door, so anytime I wanted to take a break, I would go next door to the uh, bookstore to read, and they had a religion section. And I didn't know much about St. John before this, uh, just to let you know. Uh, I heard you know, little things in here. There's a miracle worker. He's buried in, in San Francisco, blah, blah, blah. But there was this big book, 800 pages, about some other guy who became a monk and this. But three of the chapters were, were um, given over to talking about St. John. And every time I would read those chapters, something in me would well up and I'd get teary-eyed and I didn't know why. And it kept happening. And so I'd even take a break, go back and try to read it again and same thing kept happening over and over again. I, and I said, what's going on? And around this time, um, my wife came to me and, and said, you know, doing business development may be nice income, but um, this isn't you. This isn't you. This isn't what, you know, God called you for. And we thought at the time um, that it was to uh, me to finish my doctorate and teach. But, oh, I just unscrewed something here off this. Anyway, see a little brass ball? Okay, thank you. Thank you. The, uh, so I was calling even Europe about uh, grad programs and things like that. We were ready to just, you know, f sell everything, take the kids, and, you know, my kids would have wound up with a, either a Scottish or a British accent of some kind if we had gone. And, but in the meantime, all of a sudden, at the church we were going to, the, the deacon passed away who was going to be ordained uh, to be the assistant priest, and then with the intent that, because the older priest wanted to retire, and then the assistant priest would become the head priest. And when Deacon, his name was Deacon Chris, wonderful man, uh, died of, sadly, of colon cancer at only the age of 58, but anyway, wonderful guy. All of a sudden, eyes started getting turned to me. And so the priest started 
talking about getting ordained. People in the parish were talking about getting ordained because they liked what we had did with the religious ed programs, with the young adults and all this kind of stuff we were doing and, and so forth. And I was like, are you kidding? No way, etc. And um, some of you know this, I'm not going to belabor it. Even the bishop got in on this and our local bishop. And long story short, after two years of no way, no way, no way, um, it happened and it happened very quickly. Normally, it would take about a year for them to process the paperwork and uh, come together as a group of bishops to decide, should we ordain this guy or that guy or whatever. So anyway, uh, I have, and then I had this crazy sense about St. John in the process. And so um, I really think he was praying for this to happen. Shortly after I got ordained, um, and it was really a, a great experience there. Uh, we had a young woman who was part of our church, and uh, she was going for a master's in, in counseling. And her, her focus was, and, uh, and a lot of the instructors uh, who are psych psychologists who were teaching, the focus was dealing with people who were sexually abused. And she had been um, abused actually more after she got married. Uh, her husband was, got into drugs, and then because they were running out of money, he was prostituting her. Finally, like the prodigal son, at some, and she started getting into the drugs as well, uh, and, and so forth. Finally, like, like it says in the prodigal son story, where Jesus says he came to his senses, she did, and she said, this is crazy, and, and divorced the guy, left him, and had really dealt with her drug things, but was having horrible, horrible nightmares. Horrible nightmares all the time. And anybody that thinks prostitution is some kind of a glamorous thing really is it's crazy. It's, it's one of the most dangerous professions. The abuse that goes on to the women there, it, it's insane. It's insane. So the nightmares wouldn't stop. And as she went in through this program, any of you, as any of you know, if you go into psychology, you have to be, go through counseling yourself. You have to go through counseling yourself. And she was hoping that in the process, this would help her deal with the abuse she had experienced and, and so forth. But the, the nightmares persisted. And it was a two-year program, and after a year, she was still, it was driving her crazy. She was hardly getting sleep and everything else. So she came to me one day, and she said, could, I be an, could you anoint me? And I just happened to have, at that time, somebody brought me uh, oil from the tomb of uh, St. John and, and so forth and uh, it actually it's amazing, I, I, out of nowhere this guy comes up to me who just visited uh, San Francisco and comes up to him with the oil so anyway I said I could anoint her and I said and I'm going to anoint you with the oil from the tomb of, 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 of this, this incredibly holy man and I think he would have a heart for you because he, he was actually redeeming even children out of sexual slavery and other kinds of slavery. And I think he would have a heart for you and you can ask him to pray for you. So she said, what did he look like? So I, I found an icon uh, with actually some American saints, but I pointed him out and he said, of course, the shortest one there <laughs> uh, and so forth. And she said, could I take it home and pray, you know, with that tonight and then come in tomorrow to, to see you and, and be prayed over and so forth. I said, sure. So she takes the icon home and she kept it with her, you know, that night. And the next morning she gets up and she, 
puts the icon in the car um, to get ready to come see me at the church and goes back in the, in, to her apartment to get something, comes back in to the car later and suddenly there's this, as she gets in, she goes, there's this beautiful aroma that just filled the car. And she thought, did a perfume get spilled, something? She's looking around, where's this, this aroma coming from? It's very pungent, I mean, very powerful. Not, not bad, she, it was a, a very soothing kind of thing, but very powerful. So she's, she's looking at her watch, she said, I gotta get to St. Catherine's to see Father Demetrius. So she comes to the church, brings me the icon, and I had a couple people with me to pray with her. And so we started praying, and then, um, I brought the oil out, and I opened up the oil, and this particular oil that I got actually had a beautiful aroma to it. So as I opened it up to anoint her, she starts crying and bawling her eyes out. Now, I didn't know anything about the icon that happened earlier in the day. And I anointed her, and she's crying and everything else. And uh, finally, we concluded a little time of prayer. And I asked her, I said, what, what, you know, what were you experiencing? And then she tells me about the icon. She tells me about the aroma in her car. And then she tells me that when I opened up the bottle, it was the same aroma. And she never had another nightmare again. These guys are with us. And they're inviting us to worship with them, and they're inviting us to be formed and transformed with them. So when we come here, it's not just about get a religious fix or do something because Yaya said I should do this. It's about real living transformation. And yeah, I will never live up in this lifetime or maybe a million lifetimes in the next life to anything like St. John, but they pray with us and for us. And St. John shows that even with the limitations that we may experience and even the difficulties we may pass through, I mean, surviving the culture in China where you know, people are, what's the big deal about kids in slavery? What's the big deal? or the Japanese occupation that was horrific. Shanghai had its share too, just like Nanking did, or later when the communists are coming. And then when you come to America, your own Orthodox people are trying to destroy you. And in all that, he, he would talk about the fact that Christ was just there. And by the way, he, when he would pray for people, you know, somebody said, well, you must have a real gift of prayer. And he goes, no. He says, when I pray, I pray knowing that God loves that person that I'm praying for so much. And that's my focus. It's not me that's praying. It's that God loves that person that I'm praying for. And he's a good example that growing in Christ doesn't mean everything goes great, you know, and so forth. And so St. Paul's things, to, you know, his comment today about what are, we, what are we enslaved by? What are we enslaved by that we feel so, you know, 
tied to and chained to that, you know, it, it doesn't allow us to freely give ourselves to the Lord. Instead of being enslaved to righteousness. And righteousness means the relationship with God and what God wants in our lives and the healing he wants in our lives. So, with all that, just to thank God that for, the, like it says in Scripture, God is wondrous in, in his holy ones, his saints. And that's what we're all called to be and participate in. And not because God is sitting back and saying, all right, are you doing well? And he's watching us from a distance. But he's actually here. He's actually here. And even for some of us, even in death, even our corpses still will communicate God is there in the midst of death, in the midst of the most debilitating situations. God is there. And he will work out, he will manipulate the manipulators in the end. He will, he will do what he's going to do. And he asks us just to surrender to him. Which doesn't mean everything magically goes the way we want, but, he, but in the process there will be a transforming reality.